Thank you so much for coming this evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I coordinate the public programs here at the library. It's always good to have a nice crowd for a local author. Uh, Steve Luxemburg and his siblings were raised to, above all, tell the truth. They were surprised to learn after their mother's death that she had not told the truth, that she was not an only, t- only child, as she claimed, and that she had kept a secret from her family. We all know that every family has secrets, but not every family has a writer inspired to keep digging for the truth or digging away until he discovers the truth. Steve Luxemburg is a journalist. He lives here in Baltimore, and he's an editor, having served for over 20 years as a senior editor at the Washington Post. Uh, He oversaw reporting that won numerous awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. Using his skills as a journalist, uh, Steve has pieced together the story of his mother's life and that of her family and the time in which they um, lived. His investigation took him back to Detroit, where he grew up, and also to Chicago, L.A., Austin, Texas, and the Ukraine. His new book, Annie's Ghosts, is equal parts memoir and social history and a riveting detective story. Um, Several reviewers from the Kirkus Reviews and Booklist gave this book a starred review, and uh, I can certainly uh, concur with them. It's it's really a riveting read, and I think you all want to buy a copy. We are pleased to have um, the Red Canoe here tonight selling books, and... Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Steve Luxemburg. Um, This is being podcast, so if anybody would like to leave. (laughs) If I don't stay at the podium, Judy, is that a problem? If I walk around, it is a problem. So I'm now constrained to a two-foot by two-foot space. Um, For those of you who are... Uh, hoping to hear Bill Ayers, that's tomorrow. Uh, I, uh, I got no calls from either the right or the left protesting my talk, I guess because they all have families. That seems to be fine. I, I do wish we could go outside because it's been so nice out, so I really appreciate all of you coming out and being inside on in such a beautiful night here in Baltimore. Um, I'm going to do this in stages. I'm going to show some few photographs, because I think it will help narrate the story, but I'm going to do that later when the story is to that point. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit, but I've never been a fan of reading uh, at, at book talks. I think it can go on too long, so I'm only going to read to help the narrative along. Uh, first of all, I'd like to really thank the library for not only doing a talk for me, but for this series. Uh, as you'll hear, I've really found that libraries and archives are one of the great treasures in America. Uh, this one in particular, I'm glad to be in the Poe room. Um, I'm worried a little bit about Poe's ghosts, uh, but I'll have to persevere anyway. As Judy said, my mother raised us to always tell the truth, and she, I, I thought I really knew her biography. Until I was in my 40s, I had no doubt that her name was Bertha, that, I mean, uh, that her name was Beth, it was really Bertha, I later learned. Uh, I had no doubt that she was an only child, she described it vividly. She had uh, images that she portrayed of living in this walk-up apartment uh, in downtown Detroit, 
where uh, she read alone, she went to school by herself, she had her two parents, my grandparents, uh, and therefore when I learned that she had a secret sister, uh, my image of, of her childhood was exploded. Uh, I could not fit her sister, whose name was Annie, thus Annie's ghost, into that picture. Uh, how did the story come out? Uh, 1995, let's go back to 1995. My mom was not, not well. She was still working, 78, tooling her way to uh, work on the expressways in Detroit, the lifeblood of that city. Uh, she was uh, suffering from emphysema, and she would occasionally have shortness of breath, and she would go to the emergency room, and finally they decided that this anxiety should be dealt with separately, and so she was asked to see a psychiatrist, not something she was really inclined to do. But she was feeling so lousy that she decided that she would, she would finally see him. Uh, in a routine family history, she mentioned to him, I now know but didn't know then, that uh, she had a disabled sister who was two, and she was four when her sister was institutionalized. Uh, unbeknownst to her, a social worker was, who was sitting in on, on the meeting, because it wasn't therapy, it was just a routine meeting, uh, my mom had forgotten that she had told her that she was an only child, as she told everybody. Uh, the social worker one day called my sister and said, does your mom have a sister? And my sister said, no, why are you asking? And that's where the secret began to emerge. That's where it began working free of its keeper. Uh, my sister, of course, did the logical thing, which was to immediately call me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know anything more than she did. Uh, you might ask how a journalist could not ask his mother about this incredibly interesting story, but we didn't ask her. And the reason was is because we thought that uh, we thought that somebody uh, would that she would feel betrayed if we suddenly asked her about this secret that she had not revealed to us. But really, more importantly, it didn't seem there would be any gain. Uh, I believed her. She was four. Her sister was two. I was the son, not the journalist. I had no reason to question this. So uh, my mom died in 1999, uh, and she essentially took her secret with her. Uh, the timeline here is very important. The, the story essentially begins uh, around 1917 and 1919 when my, my mom and Annie were born, and it extends to 1995 and 2000. Uh, Annie died in 1972, so by the time I learned of her existence, there was no way to meet her. Uh, in 2000, the secret worked its way free of its keeper once again. A letter came to my brother who was uh, uh, taking care of the mail. And this letter must have come out annually. The cemetery that sent it, asking if we wanted flowers planted on our grandparents' graves, probably sent it to my mom for many years. This time, though, when my brother opened it, saw that it was a solicitation, uh, instead of it listing two graves, it listed three. And suddenly, the secret had a name. The name was Annie Cohen. My brother immediately disabused me of the notion that this might be mom's sister by saying, well, how do you know it's not a cousin? How do you know it's not somebody else? And I said, well, I just don't think so. So we made a phone call uh, to the cemetery, and we said, do you have any records on uh, who Annie Cohen might be? And what came back was a really important record, the first record, which showed, one, that the informant of her death was a state hospital, and secondly, that my mom had arranged the burial. Uh, so I'm a journalist now. I no longer needed to be so much of a son. What my mom told us wasn't credible anyway, so I thought I'd make a few phone calls. And I called the Michigan Department of 
community health and ended up in the lap of a woman who was kind of the traffic cop for, as I now know, many families that call and say they've just learned that they have a relative who had been in a state mental institution. Uh, I said I wanted to know something about my aunt, and her response was, surprisingly, you and 5,000 other families. Well, in 2000, I was kind of shocked by this. I know that the state mental institutions had been deinstitutionalized, basically dismantled. Why were so many people calling her in 2000? But she said that she got dozens of calls a month from people who had just learned that they had somebody in a mental hospital, a relative in a mental hospital. Well, there are all kinds of issues here. There's genetic issues. You might want to know something about a relative. You might want to know the basis for that. There's just the plain curiosity issue, which, of course, is where I was coming from at first. Uh, so I asked her. I, she was very polite. She was very helpful, and she told me she couldn't tell me anything, that state law prohibited her. I said, but I'm in the next of kin, and she said, not in the eyes of the law. Uh, in the eyes of the law, the next of kin is somebody who is recognized and designated by the courts, and you have to have a court order, she said. Well, you know, this seemed kind of daunting, so I was not pursuing a book at that point. I wasn't even pursuing anything more than telling our family what I could learn. So I uh, stopped, and I said, well, do you think the records even exist? She said, I don't know. I said, well, would you be willing to find out? Because if they don't exist, there's no point in pursuing a court order. She said, well, I do have a source. At, she can call it a source, I guess. That's my language. <laughs> I have, I, have a, I have a contact at Northfield. I'll make a phone call. Well, I didn't really think too much of it, but uh, about a week later she called back, and she said, my, my contact says that all the records have been destroyed for your aunt. Uh, and I said, well, that's too bad. And then a week later I got a fax. I'd given her all this contact information just in case something occurred. And, and, the, and the fax came in, and it was the first six pages of Annie's admission record. And I sat down to sort of glance through it, and I looked at the date, and I looked at the date a second time, and I looked at the date a third time, and it said that she had been institutionalized on April 20th, 20th, April 27th, 1940, which would have made her 21 years old, and my mom would have been 23. Well, now, <laughs> everything I had thought I knew had been uh, exploded, so... I was really interested. But at this point, I still felt that I wanted to share the information with the family, so that's what I did. And it wasn't until 2006 that I started to really research the story. I wasn't really ready, I guess, before that, and besides, I had a day job. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about where Annie went. Uh, Annie went to an institution called Eloise, kind of a strange name for a mental hospital. Uh, Eloise uh, was, uh, was an institution on the outskirts of Detroit, and at its peak, it had 10,000 residents, 5,000 who were psychiatric patients and 5,000 who were either homeless or infirm. This was the era where large mental hospitals were the norm, where states thought, as Michigan had as a policy, that its defectives, as they call it, were called in the law, were owed care and treatment. Well, if you think you owe care and treatment to a group of people and you have to provide it, then what you're going to build is an ever larger system of hospitals. Uh, by 1930, uh, the mental hospitals in Detroit were overcrowded. By 1940, they were so crowded that the people were sleeping on the floor. 
Uh, I'm going to start, start the slides here a bit because it'll help to uh, give you some visual impression of the, uh, of, the, of the story. And yesterday on WYPR, there was, from my point of view, of course, a wonderful review. And one of the things the reviewer... <laughs> I'll only tell you about 29 of the adjectives. Uh, the reviewer said that the photographs were quite arresting. Um, of course, as a writer, I wasn't responsible for the photographs. So, This is a photo of my mom in 1943. Uh, she's 26 years old. Uh, and as I say in the book, um, this is one of the first photos that I have of her. When I started researching the story, I sat down and I wanted to look through all of the effects that she had left behind. And what I concluded was is that my mom didn't exist before she was 26 years old. There was not a record of her other than her birth certificate, a photo of when she was four months old, one photo of my grandmother, and that is it. Well, I mean, some of us probably don't have things before we're 25 years old, but my mom kept 600 letters that she and my father exchanged during the war. She had plenty of other things after she was 25 years old. She had no shortage of, of uh, artifacts that she had kept it seemed rather strange that she didn't have a single book, a diary, anything that would say that she had lived before she was 25. Uh, my grandmother and my grandfather came from uh, what is now Ukraine, what was then Russia, a town, a town, not a, not a village, not a shtetl, called Radzivilov. And Radzivilov uh, is important in the story in part because many of my relatives came from there, including one who figures prominently in the book, and I don't really have time to get too much into her, but uh, she remained there, and I now know, but did not know until I started researching the book, that uh, she lost her whole family in the Holocaust to a massacre that occurred in May of 1942 in Radzivilov. The uh, Holocaust in Ukraine was quite different than the Holocaust in Poland. Uh, in Ukraine, as uh, somebody has, who's been researching this, a French priest, has called it, it was the Holocaust by bullet and not by gas. Uh, men and women, children were shot in their homes, in the streets, in fields, buried there anonymously. Uh, my grandmother and my grandfather, of course, didn't suffer that fate because they left in 1907 and 1914 and were already here. Um, that's the ship that my grandfather came on. It's the SS Patricia. This is a photograph from the Library of Congress. Uh, my good fortune is, is that this is the exact same ship. It was six months before he took that, that voyage. Uh, as you can see, the, you know, the waiting passengers, uh, this is in, taken in New York Harbor as they catch sight of, of uh, Ellis Island. Uh, Annie went to the mental hospital uh, through an involuntary commitment. Uh, my grandmother was advised by a doctor that she should really be in the home for the feeble-minded. She was born with a defective leg, which occupied most of the medical attention until she was 17 and the leg was amputated. Uh, they tried to straighten it with braces and crutches. It never worked. Uh, she did, though, uh, get around, and she went to school when she was eight, a delay of three years. She graduated from elementary school and middle school, but... She was tested many times, and it was decided that she was borderline retarded. Borderline doesn't mean 
something colloquial. It was the term of the time. Uh, later, she tested more. Uh, she was uh, her test scores were were poorer, and she was therefore in the mild, uh, tending toward moderate category. So the doctor said that she should be in the institution for the feeble-minded. But the feeble-minded institution had a waiting list of a year. And so he said, well, let's send her to the mental institution instead. I'm not being sarcastic here. Uh, that, that choice was a fateful one. If you went into the retarded institution to the, the peer, her life probably would have been worse. Um, she probably would have been sterilized, for one thing, because that was frequently done. Three-quarters of the 3,500 sterilizations in Michigan that took place, took place at, at, uh, in Lapeer. Um, so she went to Eloise instead. And as you can see here, in the matter of Annie Cohn, an alleged insane person, uh, there was no diagnosis when she went to the institution. None was required. All that was required was for two doctors to certify that she was, quote, actually insane. And that's what they, uh, the, the two doctors disagreed, and a third was asked to render a, an opinion, and he rendered the opinion that she was insane and she could, quote, use a little treatment. 31 years later, um, she was still there. So my goal in writing Annie's Ghosts was threefold. First, I, I really wanted to understand my mother's decision. Why did she keep the secret? Why did she create it? Why did she nurture it? What was it like for her to keep it? Um, I have great admiration for my mother. My mother, I should say, was a truly kind and generous person who would have visited her sister in the hospital had she uh, been able to publicly acknowledge her, in part because she knew that it would get her points. I mean, you got points for doing kind and generous things. But instead, she created the secret for reasons that I'd like you to buy the book to read. Uh, <laughs> and uh, somebody asked me the other day, can I give my mom this book? And I said, well, it depends on your mom. Uh, she, so she created the secret, and it I think it took a great deal of stamina for her to keep it, to nurture it. I mean, telling everybody you meet in the first meeting that you're an only child, which is something that I bet that none of you have done, uh, is, is something that allowed her to control the story, but it also caused her a great deal of pain. And there's this moment in 1995, you remember I told you that she wasn't feeling well, where she was hospitalized in a psychiatric ward for two weeks. She was not psych, uh, hospitalized there because she was having mental illness exactly. I mean, certainly anxiety is a form of mental illness. Uh, but because they wanted to monitor her medication, she was an emphysema sufferer, and the medication the doctor thought would be best was uh, going to be a, had a very low risk of respiratory suppressant. But, of course, in our society, we, we take uh, notice of low risks, so we hospitalize people in psychiatric wards. Uh, in fact, my mom was not taking care of herself very well at the time, and I, I came to endorse this. But in one day where my, my mom was, uh, uh, the first day she was there, was really kind of an awful day. I've described it as the worst day of my life. As she was pleading with me, coaxing, hanging herself on my back, asking, take me home, and she was repeatedly saying, I can't stay here. You don't understand. Well, of course, I didn't really understand. I didn't understand that she had left her own sister in a, in a mental hospital, but not for two weeks, but for 31 years. Of course, 31 years is nothing like two weeks, but my mom knew that maybe, maybe when Annie went to the hospital, there was no plan to keep her there for 31 years. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, so she was uh, 
pleading with us to take her home, and, and we didn't. And so part of my goal was to understand my mom's situation and deal, you know, not cathartically, but deal a little bit with this pain that I was having from having made the decision to leave her there. Now, she did only stay two weeks, and that was the end of that, including the end of any discussion about any sisters. Um, but the, uh, the other goal that I had, the second goal was, I really wanted to restore Annie's life to her. I wanted to give her an identity. She had been anonymous in life when she went to the, into the mental institution. She was even anonymous in death. Her grave, when I went to visit it, had no marker. Uh, it seemed to me that by telling her story, that at least I could give her some identity. And an identity to those 5,000 other families who also didn't know where their, uh, what, what had happened to their relatives. Uh, and the third goal was to tell a story of Detroit, of immigration, of mental illness, of mental health, the change in the system. I mean, my, my aunt's time in the mental hospitals spanned two very dramatically different eras in mental health. When she entered the hospital, it was the peak, as I said. When she, it was the 50s when the medication was developed that allowed people to be treated at home. Into the 60s where lawyers began to challenge the way in which mental hospitals uh, were, were uh, run into the 70s where deinstitutionalization began and by 1980 Eloise, 10,000 strong was empty it was closed in, 19, in 1982 because it had, had a, still had a general hospital but that was the end of, of a hospital that had been around since 1842 when it started as a poorhouse um, I'm going to read I've done a, several events so far everybody has family secrets uh, as Dickens wrote in Little Dorrit uh, you know, that family had a secret, and everyone does. So the first thing, because of those, I've described my mom, I've described Annie. I want to, I want to use the, the reading to tell you a little bit about those people. Let me set the scene for this. So I described the woman who is my cousin who, who survived the Holocaust. She has a remarkable story of, your, of her own. You might have seen it in the Washington Post magazine in March. It was an excerpt from the book about how she pretended to be German, and managed to get a job with the Nazis as a translator. So she had a secret of her own that she was able to keep for three years and survive. She emerges from that experience, immigrates to the United States, comes to Detroit, where she meets my mom, who has her secret. And these two women square off. And here is the... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm meeting Anna Olawek in a restaurant in suburban Detroit, I've never met her before as an adult. She claims that I've met her when I was about two or three years old, but I had no memory of her. She, I know she's going to tell me about this lifelong rift that the secret has, my mother's secret has caused between them. And so then this is what uh, I write. When I met your mother, she was very friendly to me, invited me to dinner and everything else, Anna says. I come to your house. That's the house of my first 11 years, the small two-story brick bungalow on Houghton Street, in northwest Detroit that my parents bought in 1950. Sash, that's my sister, had the upstairs, and Mike and I shared a first-floor room until Jeff came along, and Mike vacated his spot for a corner of our wood-paneled basement. Our neighborhood was one of Catholics and cops, and it remained that way long after Detroit's white flight began, largely due to the city's residency requirements for municipal employees. The suburbs were the next stop, across the northern city boundary of Eight Mile, a street name that always amused me and confused new newcomers, since it's not really eight miles from anywhere now than, other than one of the city's long-ago borders. 
When was this dinner, I ask? Anna can't remember the year, but she thinks it was before I was born. That would make it no later than 1952. At some point, Anna recalls, Mom took her aside for a private talk. Anna had an idea what was coming because Tilly, that's my grandmother, the woman you saw in the photo, had already told her that Mom was keeping Annie a secret. Still, it came as a shock to hear it directly, except that in Anna's retelling, indirect might be a better description. She said to me, Anna, I would appreciate it, this subject, this subject in my house, my home. I don't want to hear it. I want to shout, subject? What subject? But just then the waitress interrupts and offers us more coffee. And when Anna picks up her narrative again, she returns to the same sentence and now removes all ambiguity. Your mother says, you're welcome in my house only if you do not speak about my sister. This is a case history of the difficulty with reconstructing long-ago events, of the intricate patterns of trouble caused by time and memory. Here I am, reinterpreting my mom's life, trying to replace the distorted picture that I had grown up believing with the part that had been airbrushed out. And now I have two versions of this key moment when mom is declaring to Annie her desire for secrecy. While I have no doubts about the crux of Anna's story, I know, after all, that mom did keep the secret. Which version comes closest to how mom actually expressed that desire? Was she elliptical and polite? I would appreciate it, as Anna's first version suggests. Or did she issue the equivalent of an ultimatum? Anna, you are welcome in my house only if, as her second version implies. And even if mom's exact words had been imprinted somehow in Anna's memory, what about her inflection her demeanor, her body language. Was mom stern or sad or nervous or demanding? None of the above, all of the above, when she branded Annie as a taboo subject in her own house. Those nuances lie beyond my reach. I cannot wrest them undistilled or unvarnished from Anna's memory. Fifty years later, this is the best that my cousin can do. So the search for my mom's motivations is a difficult one. Uh, I I managed to find a half a dozen people who knew my mom or knew my aunt on the street where my mom and my aunt lived. Um, And I do do a better job than I did there of finding out a little more about my mother's thinking. But I'm not telling. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Anna, I mean Annie. Uh, Annie is even a greater puzzle because, as I told you, I didn't get all of her records They, in fact, were destroyed, I believe. I'm not really sure that they were all destroyed, but I did my best, as you'll find in the book, to find find them and succeeded in getting enough, I think, to tell a story, but not as much as I would have liked. So here's my way of dealing with trying to imagine Annie's uh, world within the bounds of what I call uh, reporting and fact. Needing to inhabit Annie's world, I stopped by the Oakland School for Crippled Children on one of my Detroit visits. The handsome sandstone and brick building, which opened its doors in 1929, still serves physically handicapped students who make up about one-third of its 300-student population. The word crippled, however, disappeared from its name long ago. It's now known formally as the Oakman Elementary Orthopedic School. 
On the long drive to the school located on the city's west side, I wonder if there's any purpose to my visit. It's unlikely that Oakman, the equivalent of a junior high school back then, has any yearbooks or records of Annie's six years there, ending in 1937 when she was 18, three years older than the typical ninth grader. She only got a diploma, her routine history for the hospital said, quote, because it was felt that it would encourage her, not because she had actually accomplished the level of work, end quote. As I approach Oakman's front door, I have the impulse to turn around. What am I going to say when I enter the main office? Hi, I'm looking for a student who last walked these hallways 68 years ago. The school staff is going to think I've lost my mind. Annie might have been here once, but she is here no longer. How wrong I am. No written record of Annie exists, but as a kind assistant principal gives me a tour, pointing out the original wooden handrails running the length of every hallway, I have no trouble envisioning Annie on her way to class, steadying herself as she goes. Amid the school corridor's usual cacophony, the hum of a hundred voices, the giggles and shouts and light taps of quickly moving shoes, I can hear the click and the thwud and the swoosh of crutches, prosthetic legs, and wheelchairs on, on the lolium. I can't hear my aunt's voice or ask her any questions, but I can see her phantom, her phantom figure, the brace on her useless right leg, struggling as best as she can manage with either crutch or handrail, pushing herself forward, a disabled Sisyphus on her unending journey. As classes begin and the noises recede, I stand alone in the now empty hallway, vacillating between feelings of anger and sadness. Anger that she had to endure so much pain and sadness that she was born before science and medicine could do much for her afflictions. And the last passage I'm going to read is this one. Without really trying, I have become a collector of other families' secrets. Whenever I tell anyone about my detective work, the first question is invariably something like this. Can you tell me the secret? Sure, I say. The next question often is, want to hear my family's secret? No shortage of heirlooms line this attic. Hidden affairs, of course, but also hidden marriages, hidden divorces, hidden crimes, even hidden families. I have heard so many secrets that I have started a list. One of the most memorable, a man who learned as a teenager that his father was leading a double life. Two wives, two houses, two sets of children, all two miles apart in a Detroit suburb. <laughs> perhaps is a testament to the insular, insular nature of suburban life that this master of deception managed to straddle these skew lines for more than a decade before his double life came crashing down around him. Even when secrets do emerge, though, the reasons for the secrecy often stay buried. Families never learn the motivations, the circumstances, and the pressures that compel people to choose deceit rather than honesty. In this shroud of silence the secret takes on the characteristics of an artifact, interesting to examine and exotic to behold, but mysterious and often impossible to fathom. Families need not live their lives as open books for anyone to read. Just as a cure can be worse than the disease, revelation can be more devastating than reticence. That's the fear that seems to drive many of us to embrace silence or deception. But too often, we're just telling one more lie 
this one to ourselves. Now that Annie was no longer a secret, now that Mom was no longer here, the revelation had lost its power to hurt anyone. Or had it? Would understanding Mom's reasons make me wish that I, too, had left well enough alone? <laughs> 